Good morning. As we considered earlier, who is able to approach God, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? I don't know about you, but I don't think that describes any of us all that well. But there is one who it does describe, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're here this morning in Him. We're here this morning worshiping in His name and considering the fact that Jesus does have clean hands, that He did have clean hands. He he does have a pure heart. He did have a pure heart. And He stands in the place of those who trust in Him. And so that everyone who will one day approach the throne of the Almighty God and be accepted will be accepted in Christ, not in themselves, not in ourselves, not because we did a few things right as we see it, or because we came here this morning, or because we were good husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, or whatever, good citizens, but because we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and we stand in him before God. So praise God for Jesus this morning. And that's really what we're here to do. Every time we gather to worship the Lord on Sunday, we are worshiping him for the grace that he gives us in Jesus Christ. It's only through him that we have anything at all. And so my prayer is that we are believing that and not relying on anything else besides the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verses 9 to 13. Genesis 3, 9 to 13. I want to start by saying just to all of our mothers represented here, to all of the mothers who will hear this on podcast who aren't here now, happy Mother's Day to all of you. This is a a very special day, a day to celebrate the women whom God has, has given to us. Some of us have, uh, will be celebrating our wives and our mothers today, and our mothers, our mother, mothers-in-law, I guess that's how you say that, and our mothers-in-law. So uh, we're thankful today for all of you. And today we continue looking at the first couple and the first parents, the first father, the first Mother, Adam and Eve, the parents of all humanity. Motherhood goes back to Genesis 1 to 3. Fatherhood goes back to Genesis 1 to 3. As we've seen so many times as we're we're going through this series on Genesis, that just about anything and everything we could think of in the Christian life or we we could teach about or talk about goes back ultimately to Genesis. All of theology essentially goes back to what we find in Genesis. All of philosophy goes back to here, these early chapters. So we have Adam, the first man, and Eve, the mother of all living. As we're told, we'll get there in Genesis 3.20. She's called the mother of all living. And we've been working our way through the opening chapters of Genesis for some time now. And recently, we have come to the account of the fall In chapter 3, and that's where we find ourselves today. The fall of humanity away from God into sin. 
That is where sin enters the world, Genesis chapter 3. So we ask the question, why is there sin? And typically, we're really good at asking that question in the abstract. So why is there sin in the world? Or if it's not so abstract, maybe it gets a little concrete and we say, why are those sinners over there doing what they're doing? Uh, but this, also, uh, this question also needs to be turned inward. Why is there sin in me? Why is there sin inside of this heart, in this life? And why is there death? Why is it the case that each of us is going to have a funeral at some point? Why is it the case that many of the people whom we love and know have already had their funeral? This is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Death is a part of everyone's life. Every life ends in death. Why? Why is this the reality of the world we live in? Why are there corruption and condemnation? Why do we find ourselves hurting the people we love? Why do we find ourselves turned entirely inward and not loving other people or really caring about the interests of others? Why do we find ourselves enslaved to our passions and our desires that oftentimes take hold of us and bring us in all kinds of crazy directions and ruin our lives? Why is this the case with every human being? This brings us back to the fall to Genesis chapter 3. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul in the New Testament takes it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he takes it back to Genesis. He says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a great explanation of, of why there is sin, why there was sin thousands of years ago, why there is sin today in us, and how it all connects back to Adam. We find that there in Romans 5, verse 12. So far, as we've gone through this narrative of the fall, we've looked at two sections in Genesis chapter 3. So in verses 1 to 5, those first five verses of the chapter, we looked at the deadly dialogue. And essentially what this was, was the conversation between this serpent, Satan, and Eve. And we see that at the center of this dialogue between the serpent, between Satan and Eve, is God's word. And what happens to God's word in that opening dialogue of Genesis chapter 3? It's essential for understanding what follows. What happens to God's word? It is twisted, altered, contradicted, and maligned. It begins with Satan saying, Did God actually say and then he perverts what God said. Eve repeats what, what God said, but she changes the words. She shrinks God's goodness and she enlarges the prohibition. And then we see that Satan outright denies the truthfulness of God's word. You will not surely die, Eve. This is not true. God is a liar, says Satan. And then we have God's character being maligned. God just really doesn't want you to reach your full potential. And so this is why God has told you you can't eat from this tree. Because when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll essentially sweep him off of his throne. You'll take his place. And you'll be great like God. That's Satan's lie to Eve. 
And then in verses 6 to 8, which is the second section we looked at in Genesis 3, we have the deadly deed. So we have the deadly dialogue. Then we have the, the deadly deed itself. We have the eating of the forbidden tree by Eve and Adam. We have a, a, a spotlight, really, on Eve's desires, on Adam's indifference and rebellion. It is, it is striking and amazing that Eve simply takes the fruit and hands it to Adam, and the text is so brief, so concise, he took and he ate. This is the same man in Genesis 2 whom God commands, don't eat of this tree. Remember, Adam received the command, not Eve. Presumably, Adam told Eve what God had said, and here we have the very one whom God had, had breathed into existence, whom God had looked at and commanded not to do something, and here he just so quickly rebels against God. And then we have the immediate effect, making coverings for themselves, hiding among the trees that God had placed there in the garden. Shame, guilt, and separation. Have you ever felt those things? Yeah. Every single one of us has. And it's because of our first parents, and it's because of our own sin. We participate every day in the same, in the same kind of sinning as our first parents. Shame, guilt, separation from one another and from God really defines the human experience. And so we've looked at verses one to five, we looked at verses six to eight, and today we come to verses nine to 13. And the title for the sermon this morning is The Divine Interrogation. So up to this point, God has not been a character in the narrative. Things have just been happening there in the garden. God is there. God is present. But now we have God explicitly referred to. He, he enters the scene at this point in verse 9. He enters the scene and begins to address the first humans with a series of questions. We have an interrogation here of Adam and Eve. So if you will, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. And in order to gain a sense of, of the whole picture here, what I want to do is go back and, and start in verse 1. And so we're going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. But our focus this morning will be on verses 9 to 13. This is the Word of God. By the way, this is why we say that. Because Satan tells us this is not the Word of God. See, it was the first lie. I just want to say this briefly. This was the first lie that entered the world. That when God speaks, it's not really God speaking. It's something else. And so as a church, we confess this morning that this is the very word of God. And so we rise and we, we show reverence for it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And now we pick up with verse 9 today. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask that this time not be in vain. Because you know what? This time could be just spent mindlessly sitting here or standing here. Uh, And we could just let this time pass. But let's all pray individually that God would do a work in us. That God would not just leave us where we're at. That we will leave here different, whether we need Christ. Uh, for the, maybe some of us have not trusted in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and we don't have eternal life. Look to Christ today. Pray that God would have mercy on you. And for those of us who are believers, let's ask that God would conform us into Christ's image, that he would not just allow us to sit here this morning in one ear, out the other. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your presence would be with us today. We know that, that you are here, Father. We're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for your promises. We know that you are a good, truthful God. How you reveal that to us in your precious word. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we are not left to ourselves to figure it all out. Thank you that our perverse and twisted minds and hearts are not the the basis for our view of reality, but that we have your word as a rock upon which we can build our lives, an anchor in the midst of all kinds of chaos going on around us, Father, a book that has lasted centuries and centuries in which men have put their trust, men and women, boys and girls across Space and time have put their trust in this precious book. So, Father, this morning we just want to understand you through it. We don't want to worship the Bible. We want to worship you, but we know that you make yourself known through the Bible. And so, Father, we pray that this morning we would see your face in your precious word. God, help us today to lay aside distractions that we have. Help us to lay aside our our fears, our remorse, Father, undoubtedly there are family tensions maybe represented here this morning as it is Mother's Day and perhaps there are just 
wounds between children and mothers. Father, would you heal those, we ask in the name of Jesus. And we ask also, Father, that you would not allow those to become a distraction to this moment, this, this wonderful moment in which we get to hear you speak to us through the Bible. So God, would you be merciful to us today and remove obstacles to our understanding? And would you apply these things to our hearts as only you can do by your Spirit? Would he do surgery in each of us today, we ask? Thank you for this time, God. We know it is a grace. It is a gift. We take it for granted. Each of us does. But we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am taking it easy on everyone this morning. We are only going to have two points, only two main points. Joanna Thompson, our children's ministry director, reminded me some time ago that although I may say we only have two or four points, there's actually many unseen points throughout the sermon. That will be true today as well, but at least only two points for you to write down to kind of capture the whole, and maybe you can get some of the other little unnamed points along the way. But two main points, two main themes, two places where we're going to put our spotlight this morning. The first, as we consider the divine interrogation, the first is the character of the questioner, and secondly, the condition of the sinner. I think those really are the two main things that we are meant to see. As we go through, of course, many different facets to each of those, but those are the two main ideas, I think. The character of the questioner and the condition of the sinner. So let's look at the first of those. The character of the questioner. One of the most important truths that we've seen repeatedly in these opening chapters of Genesis is that the Bible is about God. You know, one of the critiques that I think is justified is that uh, an approach to the Bible that sees it as this kind of stripped down guidebook for life where you just grab a nugget here and a nugget there and it's not hard to find speakers, preachers who treat the Bible in this way. The Bible's not about the Lord, our God. It's about how I can get get another technique for life for being fulfilled in life, and I pile up the techniques, get them just right. The Bible is a book of wisdom, really, that's all. And it's really about the human being. That's not the picture of the Bible that the Bible gives about itself. The Bible tells us that the whole book is about the Lord God himself. And we saw that as we came to the very first verse. The very first sermon in our series on Genesis was starting with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is about him from the very first verse in Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Essentially, the Bible is about is telling us what God is like. What is God like? The Bible lays out there for us the answers to those kinds of questions. But more importantly, it's not just a, a book that tells us about God as though we are then meant to go and look at God as a painting. Like God is an object of our admiration. So look at this. Look at this beautiful, wonderful, holy, good, majestic God. Isn't he wonderful to marvel at and look at? And like in a museum, he's really just a glorified museum piece. And we go and we check him out. And we think, wow, this is, this is really a great God. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible tells us what God is like in order that we might know him. 
not just know about him, but that we might walk with him, that we might know him personally, have a deep abiding relationship with him that far transcends the closest relationship that we have in this life. So I want you to think right now about the closest relationship that you have. Maybe, being that it's Mother's Day, it's your mom, or maybe for you as a mom, it's, it's maybe a child. I don't know. We would hope for the married couples that it's each other. Uh, that would be the hope. But think about the closest relationship that you have. It is, it is nothing, it is as nothing compared to the relationship that God extends to us in Christ in the Bible. This is who I am, now know me. Let the man who boasts not boast in what he has or, or how strong or wise he is, but that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. That is what the entire Bible is about. We can invent him according to our own preferences, and every single unsaved person does that, by the way. Every single unsaved person invents a God whose standards they can measure up to, right? We don't want the holy God of the Bible because the holy God of the Bible holds us accountable for our sins, We want a God fashioned out of our own preferences and our own comforts. We want a God who props up our sins, a God who's really quite short so that the standard of our lives and the holiness of God run about the same. And in the end, we deceive ourselves into thinking that when we stand before this God whom we've made in our own image, that we'll be quite all right. That's a lie. And every person who drinks from that cup will understand on the day of judgment that it was a lie all along. So we can invent him according to our own preferences, comforts, and values, or we can go to the Bible. It's really one or the other. We can go to the Bible and see what he has revealed to us about himself. And when we go to the Bible, there is no shortage of what we find regarding the Lord. I mean, just consider this. How much have we already seen about the Lord from the first two and a bit chapters of Genesis? How many characteristics and attributes of God have already come flooding before our eyes just in these two chapters and some verses from the Bible? And we're talking about this entire book being about God. By the way, this is the reason that we spend time in the Bible, is that we might know about God and that we might know him. There's so much here in this book. And I think there is much that our passage for today teaches us about the Lord. So as we look at this divine interrogation, which is what we have before us here in verses 9 to 13, both the manner in which the questions are asked and the questions themselves tell us a lot about the character of God. Just from the way God asks these questions and what specifically he asks Adam and Eve, there is so much here to be learned about this God whom we call Abba, this God whom we pray to as our Father. So what do we see? I think there are at least four things. These are those, these are those points I was talking about before. I think there are at least, at least four, so get these, at least four major characteristics that we see here about God just from this brief passage. 
So the first of those is that God comes to them as a gentle father. It's so important that we see that. God comes to Adam in particular, but them in general, he comes to them as a gentle father. He does not consume them with a fireball from heaven. Here's the thing. That should shock us. Do you see that? That should shock us that he does not just consume them with judgment and destroy them. See, part of the problem is we think sin is really a small thing. That's why hell is so repulsive to the world, is because sin is not a big deal. But God is the creator king who gave everything to Adam and Eve, who, who loved them, gave them life, and so quickly they turn away from him. They embrace the, the idea, the notion that he is a, an unjust, tyrannical liar. And they rebel against him. They do the one thing that he told them not to do. The tree's not even special. It's not a magical tree. It's just a tree. It's no different from any of the other trees in the sense that it, it's beautiful and it gives fruit. All of the other trees did that, but they chose to partake of the one tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. God does not consume them with a fireball from heaven. He does not open up the earth and swallow them. He does not destroy, as 2 Peter says, all of the elements, he will one day, all of the elements of the universe. He does, not, he does not just destroy everything that he has made. We see that in the flood, except for his grace shown to Noah and his family. We see that at the end of time that God will do that as he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But here, this first sin that led to all other sin, we see that God is a gentle father. He does not consume them in judgment. And the manner of his approach reminds them of the communion they have had with him up to this point. Do you see that? Not only does he not destroy them where they stand, where they're hiding, cowering behind trees. Not only does he not destroy them, but he comes to them in the same manner that they had communed with him in before. God had walked with them in the cool of the day, in the evening. They had experienced his presence. Whatever it, we are to mean, whatever we are to understand about God walking with them. So some have said, well, this is really just a, a, a this is anthropomorphic language. It's meant to, to kind of capture what God is doing there in human terms. Or it could be a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of God's presence. We see this in the Old Testament, that the Lord comes to the tent of Abraham. And he's standing there. We see that Joshua is going to go do battle and, and uh, the, the general, essentially, of the host of heaven stands before him. We see this fourth figure in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We got this mysterious figure in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord who is, who is sort of physically present. These are called theophanies, appearances of, of God. And so could it be here that we have that, something like that? I don't think we get an answer to that question. But what we do know is this. This, this gives us a sense of a high level of communion between Adam and Eve and the Lord God. And that's the manner in which God presents himself. See this. That's the manner in which God presents himself in this moment of rebellion. He does not come down from heaven with a loud, booming voice, sharp and stern and severe and harsh. No, he comes as he had before. 
The text conveys this sense as well by reintroducing the name of God as Lord God. Do you see that? It's incredible. I mean, up to this point, we, we have God just simply called God. He's not called the Lord God up to this point in Genesis 3, right? Because at the very beginning of the chapter, we have the devil speaking, and he takes out the Lord bit. Now remember, the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's, or Jehovah as it's been uh, rendered in the past, uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, but Yahweh is probably the better way to, to, uh, to articulate that. And so we see that name, the Lord or Yahweh, being attached to God in, in the second chapter. It, it's the language of, of closeness. It's the covenant language between man and his God, the Lord God. But then the serpent appears and he, he takes that name off, distancing the mind of Eve from the covenant relationship between herself and her God, the Lord. Now we see that reintroduced. The Lord God being present here now. Already, this is what we have to see. This is amazing. This is before we get to that wonderful verse, verse 15, where we have the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Even before we get to that point, I think here we're beginning to see a God who loves and forgives sinners. Do you see that? Even at the very beginning. That's incredible. Because all of the Bible will be about that very theme. God's love and forgiveness towards sinners. His grace. All of scripture is about his grace in Christ. It's working towards it. Christ comes and then it's explaining it. And we see that. It's amazing. Even here with the sin of the first humans. So that's the first thing I want you to see. God comes to them as a gentle father. One characteristic we can see about God. Secondly, and connected to our first point, God is active in seeking the lost. So it's connected, right? We have gentle father, but then we see from that too, God is actively seeking the lost. It's incredible. God here quickly takes the initiative in seeking out Adam and Eve. Luke 19, 10 Jesus said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And here the Lord God enters the garden to seek and to save the lost. As we see him making promises to them and he covers them with animal skins. A picture of Christ's sacrifice there. Animals have to be killed in order to cover Adam and Eve, and we see a picture there of the, the Christ who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who will be sacrificed to cover us in our sin. So we see God actively seeking the lost. The Lord God called to the man and spoke to him. That's what we get in verse 9. God pursued Adam and Eve not just as judge, but as Savior. He pursued them as judge, and he would judge them. He would render judgment upon them, and he would cast them out of the garden. Literally, he will drive them out of the garden, place an angel there to keep them from partaking of the tree of life. And immediately, what happens? When we get to chapter 4, it's incredible. We have Cain and Abel. Cain will kill his brother, Abel. Cain will be driven away. So we see Sin and death beginning to work itself out. But what we have here is God pursuing them, not just as a judge, but also as a savior. And I think one thing we can conclude from that is that God moves towards sinners. Do you hear that? God does not move away from sinners. He moves towards sinners. He came into the world in the person of his son, 
He comes to every person who's converted, every Christian in this room, every person in this room who is a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Some traditions would say simply, well, I trusted in Jesus. I I made a choice for Christ. And that is true. Every person who is a Christian had to make a choice to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to trust Christ. Absolutely. But why? Let's go back a little further. Why? Because God, before the foundation of the world, chose you in Christ, and in the course of your life, he called you to himself. He pulled you to himself. He took hold of you, and he redeemed you from all your sins. That is the reason why a person is a Christian. God moves towards sinners. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we move towards or away from sinners? Because this is our God. This is is what he's like. So what are we like as Christians? Huddling away from those tainted sinners? Or like the Apostle Paul, moving out into the communities of sinners as Jesus did with Matthew's buddies, saying, come to Christ, moving towards them. Not a single one of us would have come to Christ had God not irresistibly drawn us to himself. And that will be the case with every person we share Christ with. It is God who initiated our salvation. It is God who initiates the salvation of every person. And it was the Lord God who initiated the very first movement towards sinners in the garden. We see him here. So that's the second thing. He seeks the lost. He's a gentle father. He seeks the lost. The third thing I want you to see is that God knows all and he sees all. He knows all and sees all. Despite their efforts, Adam and Eve learned very quickly that no one can hide from the presence of the Lord. No one. They think that they can hide themselves from God by making these, uh, these little girdles, whatever it is they made, and then hiding themselves among the trees. It's it's despicable picture. I mean, you would think that by the way, we should consider this. You, they, they did know that they couldn't hide from God. They knew that because they knew God. They, they had walked with God. They knew what God was like, and they knew God would. They would have known God was omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's all-seeing. They would have known these things about God. But see, sin distorts the mind. Sin distorts our picture of reality. So here they are showing that intellectual distortion, the notion throughout Christian history that sin is really found in the, in the passions. But what we need to do is rise above that and be intellectually driven. No, no, no. Sin whoom, takes over the mind, just like it takes over the heart and the affections. Every aspect of man is corrupted by sin. His reason here we see even corrupted, hiding from God. But he can't. He can't hide from God. God is there and he draws them out of hiding. Psalm 139, 7 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And he goes on to say, I could go up to heaven, you're there. I could go down under the earth to Sheol. That's the, the Hebrew Hades, the underworld, under the earth. I could go down there and you're there. I cannot flee from your presence, says the psalmist in Psalm 139. What about Jonah? Remember recently we had 
Pastor Tony Carter come and share uh, with us on our men's retreat from Jonah, and then he came here and preached a, a sermon on that as well to our church, a, a really uh, delightful look at, at this wonderful short book in the Bible. But what does it say at the very beginning of Jonah? Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's incredible. He's getting on a boat, going away from where God told him he needed to go to preach to the Ninevites, the Assyrians, whom he hated because he was a Jew and they had roughed them up and he didn't like them. He just wanted them all to die, essentially to die and to be lost. And God wants him to go and preach to them. And so he says, no, I'm not doing that. So he gets on a boat and goes the opposite way. He goes out on the sea, which God made, thinking that he's out from under God's watching eye. Once again, Jonah knows better. He knows Genesis. He knows the, the God of the Bible. He knows who the Lord is, just like Adam did. But see, sin perverts the mind. It twists the reason. And so he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. We know what happens. God sends a storm. He sends a, a, a fish. The point, he did not and could not hide from the Lord. So that's the third thing we need to see is that God knows all and he sees all. Finally, and by the way, this is just minimal. There's other things we could make out here, but this is the fourth and final thing I want you to see about the Lord as we consider the character of the questioner. Finally, God graciously helps the man to see his condition. Now, this is not, this is not immediately apparent to us that God does this. So I want to I want to give you a quote here from a commentator. Kenneth Matthews says this. These questions explain to the man. Do you see what God is doing? God is making statements by means of questions. It's a great way to relate to people who are just in a, in a wrong place. Our children, perhaps. These questions explain to the man that his sense of shame arose from his defiance of God's command. The questions themselves are meant to instruct and teach, to impart understanding to the man. See, Adam acts as though his shame and fear derive from his nakedness. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself, he says. He thinks that the reason that he's feeling all of this is because he's naked and he, he's naked. I, I, gotta, I gotta hide from God. I'm naked. This is defiling. But that's not the problem. God shows him that his shame comes from his disobedience, not his nakedness. So look at the dialogue in verses nine to 11. Look at those first three verses of our passage. Nine to 11. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, Adam has been naked all along. That's clearly not his problem. Adam thinks that's his problem, but he's been like that since the very beginning. But now, this is important, now he experiences a need to cover himself. This is what's going on here. 
Now Adam is experiencing a need to cover himself, to shield himself, to hide himself because he is a guilty sinner. And that is what sinners do. Sinners hide themselves from the face of the holy God because he is perfect. He is sinless. He is spotless. He is untainted. And so it is the guilt that Adam feels that leads him to all of this covering and hiding himself away. He is hiding not because he's naked, but because he's guilty. And God is gracious to show Adam this with leading questions. That is how God gets Adam. God is working to have Adam understand this. We see that he really doesn't. But God is working to show Adam what is going on, the reality of the situation. And let me just say this about the Bible. If you read the Bible for any amount of time, no matter where you pick it up, you're going to be confronted with sin, death, and hell. And here's the thing. The reason why these things aren't popular in the world is because this is the truth of the situation. See, we want to be deceived into thinking that there's other reasons, there's other problems, but ultimately, the truth of the situation is that sin, death, and hell are real. And here's what we need to see about the Bible. See, some folks will read the Bible and say, well, this is, what is this stuff? It's, it's harsh, it's severe, it paints God as being mean-spirited. But that's a backwards way of looking at it. Because when we pick up the Bible and we read it, here's what I want you to think. Gracious exposure. Gracious exposure. That's exactly what God does for us in the Bible when he talks about sin, death, and hell. We saw this with the, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, how much does Jesus there talk about hell and judgment? It's incredible. Why? Gracious exposure. God is graciously showing us the reality of the situation. You see, Satan wants us to think, all is well. All is well right into hell. That's the reality of the situation. But God tells us that all is not well. Sin is in the world. Sin is in each of us, and we need a redeemer. And apart from him, it ends in death. It ends in judgment. It does not end well. I want to make one application here for parents as we consider what God does here as father. I think this is important for us as we think about God as father with, with Adam and Eve. God gently uses questions to go after the heart. If I could summarize what we've got here with God, I want you to see this. This is very important for us as parents. This is very eye-opening to me this week. God gently uses questions to go after the heart. And I think we could learn a lot from his example as we consider our own parenting. So what do these verses tell us about God? Well, he is an omnipresent, omniscient, gentle, and loving father. He is a judge, but also a savior. He exposes truth and pursues the heart. Wow, isn't that incredible? Get that much about God just from these questions, and that is the case. 
all throughout the Bible, it just drips with truth about this great God. But now we turn to the humans. What does this passage communicate about them? And more importantly, about us. And that leads to our second point, the condition of the sinner. The condition of the sinner. The picture given here of Adam and Eve is truly sad. It's tragic. And that becomes even more the case when we consider that this is a picture of all of us. We begin to put the magnifying glass over our lives. We begin to look deep down into the nooks and crannies of our hearts. And we begin to see the reality of this situation very, very close to home. What we see in our own hearts. You know, there are various places in the New Testament that describe the condition of the sinner, and I won't read all of them. You could look in Romans 1 and Galatians 5. Those are two I haven't written down here to read to you, but I want to read these two. This is what the Bible tells us is the state of being for an unsaved person, a person who who does not know Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven, a person who does not follow Jesus, actively pursuing him. This is what we're told in Scripture about the lost state. And you were dead. This is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians. He's saying, this is who you used to be. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath, following Satan, Jesus calls the Pharisees children of the devil, This is the life of every unbeliever. This is incredible because we we are, we are, it is so easy to ascribe this to the people we see on the news who do horrible things. You maybe have the news come up when you pull up your internet, which is what I do, and I, I can see the various stories of things. Any given day, it's just horrible what you read, the different things, even this morning. Unspeakable things that people do that we read about. What we need to understand is it's not just those people. It's not just those people who are children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's every human being, every human being outside of Christ is this, Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the way the scriptures, and these are just just a sampling, the way the scriptures describe or portray an unbeliever. This is our condition. So what do we learn here about the condition of human beings when we come to the fall, when we come to Genesis 3? There's a lot here, and we've already talked about some of it, but there are two things that I want to draw your attention to this morning, just two words that I want to give you. One, missing, and two, blaming. They are missing, and they are blaming. So let's look at each of these as we, 
as we finish up this morning. Missing and blaming. Look at these three words in verse 9. What is the first thing God says to Adam? He says, where are you? And by the way, as I said before, notice that the question is to the man. The man is responsible for the fall because God made Adam first and God commanded Adam directly. He's responsible for his home. He's responsible for his family. And I would even say this to us, that means husbands and fathers. The Lord God essentially comes to us about the state of our marriages. He comes to us about the state of our homes and asks us questions. We are responsible as the heads of our households. We are responsible as fathers and husbands, as leaders. But God says specifically to Adam, where are you? One of the early church fathers, Ambrose, says that the point of this question is to bring the man to the point of understanding his condition. So this is what he says. From what condition of goodness, beatitude, and grace, he means to say, have you fallen into this state of misery? So what Ambrose is emphasizing there is that when God says, where are you? He's essentially saying, where are you in terms of your condition? Where are you at now? in terms of your experience, in terms of, in terms of your own spiritual state. And I think that there is, I think that's correct. But if we are to take this word where seriously, I think we come to the conclusion that God is communicating to Adam that he is missing. He is not where he ought to be. He is not in his typical place. And God wants to draw attention to that. So that brings us to the question. Where should he be? Where should Adam be when God comes to him and says, where are you? God is showing Adam that he is not where he ought to be, so where ought he to be? And I think the answer to that question is twofold. Adam should be working the garden and walking with God. He's doing neither of those. That's important to understand. He's not functioning anymore as a human. This is the first time in which Adam has not been working and enjoying God's goodness. He's not been working what God gave in goodness and he is not enjoying what God gave in goodness. He is cowering among the trees. We could say this way, this is the first time that Adam is totally aimless in all of his existence up to this point. He's never been without purpose. He's never been without an objective, never been without an aim in his life. And now he's cowering, aimless. He's not working the garden. And more importantly, he is not walking with God. Remember earlier I said that this idea of Lord God implies relationship, covenant relationship? God walking through the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve there present in the garden, God communing with his creatures. God's there and they're nowhere to be found. Where are you, Adam? Not working the garden, not walking with the Lord God. And in showing that they are missing, God is also calling them to repentance. So Another one of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, says he invites them to make admission of their faults. This is what God is doing. God is asking them questions, asking Adam questions, so as to draw out confession, 
so as to draw out repentance from sin. But this is not what happens. This is not what they do. So what happens? What do they say? Look at verses 11 to 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So that leads to our second, the second thing we see about these human beings. They're missing, but they are also blaming. The admission of the sinful act comes only at the end of each reply. Do you see that? They, they do say, both Adam and Eve say, I ate. They do. They admit what they've done. But notice that it comes, and it's amazing. When you read this in Hebrew, it's literally the last word in the sentence. It's, it's one word joined together with these various grammatical parts. But it, it says, and I ate. At the, at the end of both of these sentences, all of this stuff preceding this admission of guilt. This is not repentance at all. This is evasion from guilt. The man blames the woman and the woman blames the serpent. The woman whom you gave me. And then the woman says, the serpent. Here's what's interesting about this. None of that is untrue. Think about it. This is just like Eve, right? The way she alters the, the words of God. What we have here is Adam and Eve are both altering the situation a little bit. They're evading guilt. They are, in, they are impenitent, unrepentant. It is true that the serpent deceived Eve. Yes, we read that. It is true that the woman whom God gave to the man gave the fruit to her and to him and he ate. This is true. But what they are doing is passing the buck, passing the blame to someone else. Even worse, the man blames God. Very subtle. But Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, God. That's why. That's why I sinned. Because you gave this woman to me and she led me astray. And then, of course, Eve saying, that's why I sinned, it was this serpent. So what is Adam doing as he blames God? He's blaming God by saying that his design is flawed. If you had not made this woman, I would not have sinned. But you gave her to me, and that's why I sinned. God's design is flawed, and that's why I sinned. Now, we need to hear this personally, because what I think Adam is also doing is he's blaming God by identifying sin with his circumstances. God, here's the deal. If you had not placed me in this garden with this woman and orchestrated these events in your sovereignty, I wouldn't have sinned. It's your fault. Evil is your fault, God. And there are many questions that we have about the origin of evil. Many questions that we have about how God is both sovereign over all things that occur and yet human beings are responsible. Much mystery there. We were talking about that this past week in the women's Bible study as I was talking with some of them. Very difficult questions, but here's what we know. Human beings are responsible for their sins. You are responsible for your sin. 
not your circumstances. I'm responsible for my own sin, my own choices to disobey God, to rebel against God. I can always put it on my circumstances. Well, God, if I wasn't so tired, I wouldn't sin. And if I didn't have this situation in my life or this person in my life, or if I didn't have this sickness, or if I had more money, or if, if this wasn't broken, I wouldn't sin, and it's a lie. Because what we're doing when we do that is we're blaming God, the providential, sovereign God who orchestrated the events in our lives is really the source of our sin. So we don't have to face it and we get to pile it up on our creator. Do you see the evil of this? We do it every day, every day. And it was done at the very beginning. Adam is playing the victim. Eve is playing the victim. This is not repentance at all. It is shifting blame onto someone else and ultimately a form of hating God. Isn't that amazing? Romans 1 tells us at the end that sinners are haters of God. Very few people who are unsaved, probably in our neighborhoods, people we know, would say, I hate God. I just hate him. I don't believe in him, but I hate him. There are people who say that. You know, it's like, well, you're so up, up in arms against God, you don't even believe in him. This doesn't make any sense. Very few people would say, I hate God. But the truth of the matter is that every person who's not a believer hates God in this way at the very least. We pile upon him accusation upon accusation and sinners will stand before God's judgment and be in hell, still hating God. Yet God's judgment is just. This is what sinners do. This is what each of us did before God saved us. Praise his name. Before he changed our hearts. The prayer is that he would change all of our hearts. So today we've been given a picture of God and of ourselves. Who we really are and who God really is. Our condition is one of depravity. But God is a God of mercy. Will we turn to him? Will you turn to him? Will you find in him a loving father? Will you find in him a gracious God who is merciful towards sinners? Will we repent or will we do as Adam and Eve did and take the blame of our own sin and put it on something else? Will we call out to the God who calls us through his word this morning? Will you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for instructing us of your character. Thank you for showing us what we really are, Father, sinners in need of a Savior, apart from whom we have nothing. And God, we pray that we would look to Jesus. Help us, Father. We need him desperately. In his name, amen.